Purple Solutions to Fix Healthcare in America podcast. Each week, we explore bipartisan solutions to healthcare reform through discussions with leading experts from across the country. To learn more, go to purplesolutions.org and join us at our Healthcare Economic Summit on July 31st. Hello, everybody. I'm Dan Sem, Dean of the Batterman School of Business and Director of the RX Think Tank at Concordia University in Wisconsin. And I'm really excited because today we have as our guest uh, David Reamer. He's a policy expert and author of Putting Government in Its Place, this wonderful book here, which I think you should all read. So David Reamer has worked closely with both Democrats and Republicans to create path-breaking public policy at, at the state level, but also to influence national policy. He's an impressive guy. He's a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School, and he's held administrative, legal, and policymaking positions with the mayor of Milwaukee, uh, two governors, and the late Senator Ed Kennedy's uh, health uh, subcommittee. He's active in politics, both as an advisor and as a candidate, and he's focused the last decade on advocacy and writing, including his new book, with the aim to reshape the role of government in ensuring economic security, equal opportunity, and an effective market economy, things that are pretty relevant in this 2020 election year. So David, thanks so much for being here and speaking with me and our listeners today, and hopefully at our Healthcare Economics Summit on July 31st. And thanks also for being a co-author on my new book, Purple Solutions, A Bipartisan Roadmap to Better Healthcare in America. So before you get into the weeds of current healthcare policy proposals, tell us, tell me and my listeners a little bit about your career as a policy expert, focusing on healthcare when you can, when it makes sense. Because I know, like I said earlier, that you worked at one time for Senator Kennedy, Wisconsin legislator, two governors. So can you share some stories with us, David? I'd, I'd be glad to. And first of all, thanks for having me uh, on your program. And thanks for the opportunity to contribute to your, your book. It's very exciting that it's in publication and uh, it'll be out uh, before long. So it'll be uh, congratulations. I hope. <laughs> congratulations to you for, for that. Um, we often sort of uh, make fun of politicians. And I suppose some of that's okay. But I've been lucky. Uh, to have had the privilege of working with some wonderful elected officials. Um, I'm a Democrat, but I, so I mostly work with uh, people who were uh, elected as Democrats or had that political leaning. At the same time, I've also worked with some Republicans, um, including uh, former state representative Kurt Gilo, who is, uh, of course, a very key figure at Concordia. Also worked with former Governor Tommy Thompson, um, wonderful state senator from Wapaka, Jolian, and, and, and some others. So I'll, I'll just share a, a couple of stories about the, the generosity as well as the humor that you run into in political life. Um, you, you mentioned that I'd work for Senator uh, Ted Kennedy. Um, I had the privilege of sitting next to him on the Senate floor when legislation I worked on was, was passed. And then afterwards, I went off to the Congressional Record Office to as they say, clean up the, the way the senator's comments were transcribed. You know, like every other human being, there were us and ahs and sentences that weren't quite perfect. So it was my job to just kind of clean it up. Um, but afterwards, I just happened to walk out on the steps of the US Capitol. And I'm just standing there, ran into a friend from college, and we were chatting. And all of a sudden, the revolving doors uh, from the, the Capitol, from the Senate wing, started to move real fast. And two, two guys in black 
with uh, little, uh, you know, microphones coming down from their ears came out. Oh, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> well, these were Secret Service folks who were guarding Kennedy. After all, both his brothers had been, had been assassinated. So there was concern at this point, he was actually running for president uh, in 1980, you know, lo losing, as it turned out, to Jimmy Carter, who then lost to Ronald Reagan. But um, after the Secret Service folks came out, Kennedy came out and he came up to me and he said, you know, David, I've been looking for you. I just want to thank you for the work you did for helping me get that bill passed. Um, this was a bill that involved changing the regulation of prescription drugs to get mm -hmm. drugs approved faster, but also more, more safely. Okay. So we chatted for about 30 seconds and then he turned around with the Secret Service agents and went back through the revolving door. But this just sort of shows you how some uh, elected officials can be, you know, not just, you know, decent human beings, but extraordinarily generous and thoughtful to the, you know, staff folks who work for them, often working long hours and sometimes feel maybe that they're not even, even noticed. But uh, Ted Kennedy wasn't like that. He knew who worked for him and appreciated them. I had a similar, uh, a different kind of positive experience once uh, involving uh, Tommy Thompson. He was then in the legislature and I was staffing a committee that he served on. We had just flown back from one of the cities where we'd gone to hear folks from the state, one of the University of Wisconsin um, uh, um, universities. I think it was either Superior or Green Bay, can't remember. We came back into the Madison airport. Uh, cars came from the Capitol to pick up the legislators and the staff. And of course, the protocol would have been for the first cars that come to pick up the legislators and then for the the next car to pick up the uh, the staff, but I I was getting antsy. I needed to catch a bus to get back to Milwaukee to see my 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 girlfriend, who's now my wife. And when Tommy heard about this, he said, well, "You you take the next cab and have him take you to the to the bus depot because I want you to be sure to catch that bus." And he he waited. So you know this was a man who later went on to be four term governor of Wisconsin, but he he had that human touch. And then the final story I'll tell you, I don't want to take up too much time, but this is one of my favorites. <laughs> I, I was having a, a committee of, uh, of legislators um, and I was explaining to them some healthcare uh, legislation that was in the works. And uh, one, of the, one of the legislators, uh, a man named Lloyd Kincaid, he was a state senator from up north. He had a, shall we say, a way with words. And uh, as, as I was explaining uh, this to him, First, well, first he asked me to give him a thumb nose sketch of the proposal. <laughs> so it was hard not to chuckle at that. And then after he heard it, he said, you know, sometimes the illness is worse than the disease. So you're, you're sitting there as a staff, you just heard this pretty funny malapropism, but you're trying not to embarrass the person. But uh, of course the other members of his, uh, his colleagues weren't so, uh, weren't so polite, but, um, you know, these, these are the kinds of memories that you have that uh, yeah. make you realize you're, you're dealing with human beings. They're trying to do their best. Um, some of them, of course, are, are bad people, make bad decisions. And you disagree with a lot of what they do, regardless of party. But I do yeah. think many elected officials, most elected officials deserve our, our respect and in many cases our admiration, even if we don't agree with them. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think I feel like sometimes we're losing that sense because the country's so divided right now, but 
you know, I, I believe in my heart that most people go into politics because they want to do some good in the world. And I know Kurt Gilo, a Republican who maybe is politically on the other end of the aisle from you, has the greatest respect for you. And said David Reamer is, is, is such an intelligent, balanced, well-researched policy expert. So, so that kind of bipartisanship and, and respect across the aisle, I think, is the only way to get solutions to, to problems. And you, know, you mentioned Tommy Thompson. I, I think he, he tried to do that. So I hope we can be doing more of that. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. So, um, so I want to go touch a little bit on your book. I'm, I'm intrigued with the title. So can you talk a little bit about what seems like a contradiction based on the title? You know, government constraint, you're implying government constraint, and yet talking about a new New Deal, which in many people's minds suggests government largesse. So I know I can't ask you to summarize the whole book in like two minutes, but, but talk about that, what seems like a contradiction. So, but maybe bridges Republican and Democratic thinking, I don't know. So. Well, I, I, I do think that at a core level, all of us, uh, or almost all of us, believe in two, um, two fairly fundamental principles. One of which is that um, we need government to perform certain functions that can't be performed uh, either by private organizations, uh, including uh, businesses, or by individuals. On the other hand, we all believe that government should be limited in what it does so that it doesn't uh, cause oppression, so that it doesn't deprive people of liberties, so that it doesn't uh, create inefficiencies in the operation of the market. So when I talk about putting government in its place, it, it was meant to have a, a dual meaning. One meaning was that government has a place. It's a very important place. We need to be sure that government at all levels does the work it's supposed to do, but doesn't do work it shouldn't do. We also want to put government in its place in the kind of undertone meaning of that expression, which is, you know, I'm putting you in your place. I don't want you to, you know, be bigger than your britches. Don't get, don't do things that you shouldn't be doing. Now, to state those two broad propositions doesn't help us very much, however, with the specifics. What, what specifically do we want government to do? And these days, what do we want the federal government to do? I mean, that's more on our minds than anything. But we can't think about that question without going back to the New Deal. Um, before 1933, frankly, the federal government didn't do very much. It was very small. It had limited functions. That was the turning point. Uh, the country was in the midst of this great depression, 25% unemployment, banks failing every day. The economy was simultaneously going through a meltdown and a lockdown. The labor market was vanishing. And, and banks, the stock market were collapsing. And Roosevelt comes in with the New Deal. He, he didn't really know. His advisors didn't know what it, what it would mean. It, as Francis Perkins, one of his major advisors said, it, it emerged. But what it emerged into was the proposition that it's now the federal government's job on a permanent basis to make sure that people have some measure of economic security that it's also the federal government's job to oversee the market broadly as a whole, not just bits and pieces as before, but broadly. And the New Deal, of course, brought forth very specific laws to carry out those principles. We had the WPA and the CCC to put unemployed people to work. We had unemployment insurance to provide income for 
people who'd lost their jobs. Government set a minimum wage that allowed collective bargaining. We created a pension program, which we typically call social security, even though there are many other parts of that bill. The government regulated banks, created deposit insurance, regulated the stock exchanges. And, and that structure interacted with the economy that we had coming out of World War II, where basically, you know, we, we ruled the world's roost in terms of economic power to produce good results for most Americans. Um, that balance of what government should do and shouldn't do as it interacted with the, the market economy that came booming out of the Second World War produced more people getting work, higher earnings, higher income, more people got health insurance, people got uh, private benefits, pension plans, Social Security came in to bolster that. More and more people got health insurance before Medicaid and Medicare kicked in in the mid 60s. And then around 1973, progress stopped. Poverty stopped falling, earnings stopped rising, income stopped rising. The percentage of uninsured was flat for decades until Obamacare had caused a temporary dip, much of which has now been erased. So the premise of my book is that when we talk about the place of government, we have to go back to the New Deal and what it did and ask the question, what, what did it do? What did it fail to do? What's missing? What did it do that was right in general but needs to be fixed in, in a big way? And frankly, are there some things that, that the New Deal did, that government did, that, that was a mistake and that we should get rid of? So if you, I know you've read the book, uh, others have too, and, and you'll see, uh, any reader, that I propose increasing government's responsibility in some areas, like creating fallback jobs for people who can't find work in, in the regular economy. I talk about modifying policies, uh, and then I talk about getting rid of a lot of things that I don't think are uh, appropriate. A lot of government subsidies, for example, that distort the marketplace and right. create deficits. I, I argue for getting government out of trying to pick winners and losers in the marketplace. I, I advocate also not having welfare programs, meaning means-tested programs that require you to be poor to get help and then punish you if you get a job, earn more money, or get married. So the place of government isn't necessarily a bigger place. It's not necessarily a smaller place. My argument is resting on the New Deal. It's bigger where it needs to get bigger, and it's smaller. It's gone altogether in places where we really don't need it, where it's doing more harm than good. Right. Yeah, I mean, that inherently on its surface is bipartisan. <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, you talk about the nature of the certain kind of welfare programs you talk about. I, I guess we encountered that a little bit now with, with COVID and we have to figure out how to adjust where, where some people uh, are making more money if they're not working. And that probably wasn't the intention, but you know, right. that, that's, that's an isolated version of the larger scale of what you were talking about. So. Indeed, indeed. So, um, so we're focused on healthcare, you know, for, for this podcast and then also for the summit on July 31st. I can't wait to see you talking with Kirk Gilo about healthcare policy and, and looking at that middle ground. Um, but can you talk a little bit about, before we talk about your ideas, which I wanna to get to, can you talk about, you know, first the, the Affordable Care Act and then, uh, and then what Bernie Sanders had been proposing, Medicare for all. So one at a time. So the Affordable Care Act, 
what do you like about it and, and what do you think should have been changed, uh, at least in its current implementation, or maybe what was originally sure. proposed, so, for the Affordable well, Care Act, so. I, I like the underlying principles of the Affordable Care Act. Um, one principle it was pushing towards the idea of covering all Americans. Um, it didn't get all the way there, but it got, uh, it, it made more progress in a short time than anything since Medicaid and Medicare. So I like that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I like the package of essential health benefits. I think that the, the list of policies of, of, of what's covered makes sense. You know, it's okay. got the obvious in there like um, doctor and hospitals, prescription drugs, but it also includes something, uh, includes a pediatric dental care, which I think is so important, for example. I, I like the policy of having uh, no cost sharing, no deductibles or co-pays for preventive care and, and primary care. We, we don't want to discourage people by having them pay a fee from going in for their regular checkups or for getting their shots. If we have cost sharing at all, it shouldn't apply to things like that, which allow us to be sure that, that people uh, hopefully don't have a health problem. But if, we, if they do, let's get on top of it, identify it quickly and get going to, to, to improve it before things get worse. So those would be more good. okay with cost sharing for other things after the preventative, so. I haven't. Or tolerant of it. <laughs> I have a, a, a unique view about that, which I'll share, share later. So we'll maybe okay. put that in the front <laughs> come back to it. The, the other thing that I do like about the Affordable Care Act, and I, I wish, uh, frankly, that there were more of it, I, I do like the idea of, of a, a marketplace. You know, they called it an exchange at first. Right. Um, that was a, a word that I first heard applied to healthcare by one of my gurus, uh, Stanford University Professor Emeritus Alan Entoven where he said we should think of the process of making choices of healthcare plans as like the New York Stock Exchange, where you have buyers and sellers and people are making informed choices. So I, I like the exchange, they now call it the market or the marketplace. Um, uh, so, and I think that some of the improvements to Medicare, for example, closing the donut hole in Medicare Part D, that makes sense to me. Um, Donut Hall for people who don't know about it was this policy which is now disappearing, maybe it's already disappeared, under which at first your Medicare prescription Part D benefit, uh, there was no deductible, then the policy stopped covering everything and there was a, in the middle of the policy there was a deductible and then the deductible ended. So it, sure. it basically encouraged people to get drugs then imposed huge fees on them for a while and then no cost at all. So sort of right. a kind of right. odd policy. So they've gotten rid of that uh, or, or soon to, to you know, bring that down to, to something much better. What, what I uh, don't like about the ACA is first of all, it still didn't get us to everybody covered. Mm -hmm. the, and the, the exchange and the mechanism, the bronze, silver, gold, platinum plans, and the way that market works is incredibly complex. And then the, uh, another problem with it is that you get a subsidy up to 400% of the poverty line. And then if you make $1 over 400%, you get no help at all. So you have a, a perverse incentive uh, to hold back on taking a job or you know, making a good investment in the market or 
getting a slightly higher interest rate in your savings account because you're fearful that if you do better economically, then you lose this, this help. We, we sh we sh if we have subsidies at all based on means, which I'm generally not a supporter of, that if we have them, they should be gradual. They shouldn't right. be this and you drop off a cliff and lose help altogether with the next dollar earned. So that so puts in odd incentives that way, yeah. yeah. Incentives is the name of the game when it comes to healthcare. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about that more. So the ACA has some perverse incentives that I wish weren't there. Right, yeah. When you asked about Medicare for all, um, I, I like Medicare. Uh, I'm on Medicare, but it's not, it's not a perfect program uh, for a number of different reasons. And so I think that um, you know, we should be careful about extending it to everybody. It's not perfect because it also has um, some pretty significant deductibles and cost sharing that inappropriately deter people from appropriate use. Although if you're in a Medicare Advantage plan, that's, that's reduced. Um, Medicare also is a, a, a program which, although it's done better recently in controlling costs, does not have, in my view, sufficient enough incentives to improve the quality of care, improve the, the cost effectiveness of care. So right. I'm hesitant to extend it to the larger population. And then there, there's another reason. Um, Medicare for all is just a phrase, but at least under Senator Sanders' proposal and some other versions of it, it would involve the elimination of all private insurance. Well, Medicare Advantage is private insurance. Um, mm -hmm. I, I have a Medicare Advantage plan. So do approximately 40% of Wisconsin residents. I think up in Minnesota, it's over 50%. In many states, it's a high percent. I'm not saying those plans are good or bad, but they're a choice available to people. Uh, many people, including me, are satisfied with their plan. It saves us money. It gives us the choices we want. So to have the federal government come in and say, you, um, the new people enrolled in Medicare, as well as everybody already on Medicare, because this is Medicare for all, are going to be deprived of an option that you like, that you're now used to if you're on Medicare as a choice, we're depriving you of that choice. I don't think that's, I don't think that's good public policy. Yeah. People, we're giving you less choice for, for no reason. I understand the concern about, you know, insurance companies making profit, making so-called excessive profit. But if in fact the system works so that profit is connected to providing good care, good options, additional preventive benefits, um, additional primary care benefits, and potentially at a lower cost, if that's what the market does, then we should not, um, just prohibit it. We should take advantage of it and use it for public purposes. And I think, I mean, I think that's what makes you so effective at being bipartisan because the uh, the other side of the aisle or, or maybe in the middle uh, sees a real value in, 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 in markets and competition and controlling costs. Uh, uh, but if you can blend that some way with with universal health care, which I, I think is is what you're shooting for. Um, and I um, 
when I've read Hayek, uh, sort of the father of free market economics, even Hayek, and, and I don't want to make my, my libertarian friends mad, <laughs> but even Hayek said that he thought there would be a need for a safety net in the realm of healthcare. But Hayek, more than anybody, valued the economics and markets. And, and I talked to a prominent economist who told me that he views that the whole concept of incentives, and, and I, think, I think you said that too, is what economics is, is all about, is proper incentives. And if you have bad incentives, um, that causes causes problems. And, and I think even those who view the ACA as being too far on the left without competition, I think it's good to remember that, that it allows markets and, and private insurance. Some of the more extreme plans do not allow private insurance and no markets and you can't go out. So, so maybe the most controversial thing I'll say is that Yes, we'll all get universal healthcare and it'll all be the same and it'll all be universally bad. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so if, if you have sort of options and then you have market forces, um, that seems to be helpful. Is The next thing I want to do is ask you about, uh, about your policy, but did anything I say contradict sort of your, your view of things? I, I'm trying to paint a picture where a, a middle ground is going to involve universal care, but the value of markets and competition. Sure. So. No, I, I, I think what you said makes a lot of sense. I, I tend to view as my uh, sort of guru of, of market thinking, uh, Adam Smith, who's kind of the sure. founder of that event. But he, he, like others, you know, recognized that markets, markets actually require government uh, to, to, to function properly. And, and uh, Adam Smith, like others, recognized that there's some things that markets can't perform. Smith, for example, thought that it was government's role to make sure that uh, that poor people get education. Uh, mm-hmm. that it wasn't a good idea for, for you know children to be working in farms and factories, uh, at least up to a certain age. They should be able, at public expense, to go to school. Um, that that their parents shouldn't be compelled to view them as uh, you know simply extra hands to bring money into the family, but that it was ultimately in society's interest, including the parents and the kids as individuals, for those kids to get, you know, basic education. So, um, you know, the, the, the distinction between government and the markets as if they're sort of on two different planets or two different solar systems, I think is, uh, is artificial. When, when I give lectures about this, what I often do is, um, I ask someone, you know, sitting right in front of me, if they wouldn't mind uh, giving me their watch for a second. Or these days, I ask for their, you know, their smartphone. Yeah, nobody has watches. <laughs> no one has watches. So I take their smartphone and then I say, uh, "Well, it's my smartphone now. I mean, I'm holding it, and I usually pick a smaller person, and I'm bigger than you, and I'm on my feet, and I can run. If you try to chase me, you have to get up, and so I'll get out of here with with what's now my smartphone." Yeah, and if they're smart enough, will say, well, but it's not your smartphone, it's my smartphone. And I say, why is it your smartphone? I mean, I've got it, I own it. Well, and I give it back to them, of course. Well, the reason why it's your smartphone is that government has set rules up that define property and that define contract and right. that force those ultimately by throwing me in prison if I take your property or if I buy it from you and don't keep my side of the bargain. So that even what we call the, the foundations of the marketplace, which are ownership of property, and then yes. the right to have enforceable contracts, are all dependent on government. 
Um, and, and usually the people that, you know, kind of talk about how government is bad and markets are, are, are all important have usually come to that lecture or that building by having walked on a government sidewalk, ridden on a government road, uh, on a street that the government has fixed the potholes, hopefully, maybe less so in Wisconsin these days, and plowed in the winter and uh, patrolled with government police officers. And they're in a building that the government has inspected to make sure it doesn't collapse. You're, you're in a building right now that's probably, as a university building, doubly inspected to be sure it's safety. I think I may see a, a government approved fire extinguisher behind you there. Uh, so, the, so the point is we, we need this blending of government doing what it must do to provide public safety and health, economic security and effective markets with the incredibly liberating and creative power of market forces. Get, getting the balance right, figuring out which, who does what is, is the key. But to sort of be an absolutist and say, I'm for 100% government or 100% markets just strikes me as, it's not even silly, it's just not real. It's, it's, it's talking as if oxygen didn't exist and, and we didn't drink water and said we, we drank uh, ammonia. Yeah, and that's kind of the danger of our polarized politics right now is things get put in those extreme buckets, which any rational person wouldn't embrace and, and probably even the policymakers don't. But but that's the way it gets presented, almost like it's a football game and you take sides. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, what you said, I, th I think any, any uh, market loving free market person is, is gonna say, we need you know, uh, uh, a reliable government that enforces law and contracts and property rights. Otherwise you can't have a free market and countries that don't have that never have functioning markets as well. And, and like you say, that is an important role of government. So it can't be, it can't be so extreme. So now I want to get to sort of the main thing, um, <laughs> talking about your ideas about healthcare policy, which are very interesting. Um, so, uh, and I know, as I said earlier, you, you worked with Kurt Gilo, a Republican uh, Wisconsin legislator, years ago to implement Wisconsin's version uh, of your policy proposal that you call Young Medicare for All. So can you talk a little bit with me and our listeners about uh, how that proposal for healthcare would have worked, why you view it as bipartisan and, and maybe a better alternative to the proposals that are being talked about now. Uh, and and we're, uh, we're looking to do our summit on July 31st before the DNC is, is in Milwaukee, either physically or virtually. So we wanna sort of add to that discussion. So can you talk a little bit about your, your proposal and how it works? So. Well, the, um, the, the, the specific details of the proposal that I worked on with uh, former Representative Gilo and also a Democrat, uh, former Representative John Richards, is slightly different than uh, a version of it that was, was passed by the state Senate uh, a year or so later. And it's slightly different in some of its details from what I call young Medicare. Right. But, but here are the basic uh, ideas. Uh, the, the first proposition, the first key point, is that everybody is covered. Uh, not because they're poor, not because they're old, not because they're an employee. Uh, they're covered because they're, uh, they're citizens or legal residents of the United States. Um, so everybody is in the system. And no more connection to employment the way insurance is done now, so. At least not as it's done now. Um, okay. 
so you would be free to change jobs and not worry about losing your health insurance. You'd be free to start up your own business and not worry about uh, your decision to become an entrepreneur jeopardizing your ability to get health insurance. So everybody's in. The, the second uh, point is that, is that the benefits would be excellent benefits. They would be pretty much the same as the essential health benefits in the Affordable Care Act. But I would argue that there shouldn't be any deductible. There shouldn't be any coinsurance. And co-pays, meaning a flat dollar amount, should be limited to cases where there's a prescription drug that's you know, prescribed by your doctor, but there's a generic version of it available. But you, for some reason, want the brand name that's more expensive. If you want to make that choice, then you should have to pay uh, all or a large part of the difference. You should be free to get the brand name drug, but it shouldn't be, uh, it shouldn't be uh, free in the sense of having the, the ability to get it, but you should be obliged to pay the extra cost. And then of course, elective surgery, you know, cosmetic surgery, not elective surgery, but cosmetic surgery would not be covered uh, by this. But you know, so, so the benefits would be excellent. And then I also believe that people should have a choice a choice among competing healthcare plans and competing, therefore, networks of doctors. But that choice, that competition, needs to be price sensitive. We need to have what Alan Antoven calls cost conscious consumer choice. Right. So, what I, what I would propose is that every year, uh, very often uh, it, these are things are done in the fall, in the autumn, there would be an open enrollment period and everybody would have um, a health insurance purchasing account that would let them get this excellent and uniform benefit package. The benefits would be the same from uh, any one of the competing healthcare plans, but the value of the account would be equal to the premium bid at the lowest level, the lowest premium bid by this very high quality uh, delivery system, doctors, clinics, hospitals, that proposes in the county where you live to uh, give you all of these services. You could use that purchasing account to enroll in that particular plan. Uh, that, but if you wanted a different plan, you wanted a different network of doctors, clinics, and hospitals, you would be free to do that. But, but that other choice would be the second lowest bidder or the third or the fourth it would be more expensive you'd be right. free to do it but you'd have to pay the full difference in cost so if, if plan a costs let's let's say a hundred dollars a month that wouldn't cost you any more premium your purchasing account would cover that full premium okay. but if plan b costs 110 and plan c costs 125 you'd be free to join them but you'd have to pay out of pocket an extra 10 or an extra 25 dollars a month now, the prices that I'm talking about would be adjusted for risk. That is to say, the dollar amount in your premium account would be a smaller amount for younger people and a higher amount for, for older people. Um, so you would not have to pay more because you're younger uh, or less because you're older. It would be whatever your age, whatever, whether you're male or female, uh, wherever you live, your health insurance purchasing account would always cover 
of the lowest premium bid in the county where you live. And if you move to another county, it would cover the lowest premium bid in that county. Okay. But, but you could uh, always buy the next level if you wanted. You're just you the have enough level. money to cover the, 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 the baseline. But unlike the Affordable Care Act, where people are looking at plans at these different levels, but the plans have differences in deductible and co-insurance and copay, those wouldn't be the reasons why you would choose one plan over another. Under my model, they would all provide the same benefits. Therefore, the reason why you would choose a particular plan would be, does it save you money? B, uh, do you feel its quality is better and you get objective information about quality rankings from groups like HEDIS and LeapFrog as well as polling surveys? And then frankly, are these the doctors you want? Is this the clinic you want to go to? Is this the hospital you want to go to? The, the analogy that I like to use is to imagine that people have, uh, have a child who's about to graduate from high school or college. And, and you, the parent, have said to that child, if you graduate, uh, I will make sure, I will, I will buy a car for you. But you wouldn't say, I'll buy any car you want. And you wouldn't even say, I'll buy 90% of any car you want. Because what if they go out and say, well, I'd like a Rolls. Um, you know, then you'd be stuck with you know, paying 90% of a Rolls. Right. What you would say is, look, you can get a perfectly good you know, Chevy or Ford or Toyota Celica or Toyota, whatever it is, yeah. Uh, domestic or foreign car. Uh, of course, the foreign cars are now often built in America. So uh, I like to say a car made in America. You can, you can get a good basic car and I'll pay 100% of that. Mm -hmm. If you want a fancier car, you're welcome to do it. You just, you just pay the dealer the extra amount. Right. That would make more sense to a parent than helping a child buy a car. Yeah. And my argument is that makes more sense in buying healthcare. Let's not deter people from getting a really good plan that has managed to submit a low bid. Right. Uh, let's, make, let's make that plan free. And in fact, it would be the default plan. If people don't make a choice, that would be their plan. So everyone's covered. But if people want another plan, they're free to do it and make an arrangement where the extra premium uh, is, is, comes out of their checking account or, or whatever. Right. Uh, pay for it with a credit card. So, so what do we have here? Everybody's covered, excellent benefits, an annual choice, uh, if they move during the course of a year to another county or location, uh, they can uh, you know, make the choice mid-year, uh, but they're not stuck with a plan that they don't like. And they can choose a more costly plan, but they just pay the difference. That's where the price uh, incentive comes in. Now, the purpose of this price incentive to the, the buyer of health insurance is not to stick them with higher costs if they should choose a more costly plan. The real reason for it is to create incentives for the healthcare plans, the doctors, the hospitals, the insuring entities that stand behind them to figure out how to do two things really well. How can they simultaneously lower their costs of delivering the services they're obliged to provide and right. at the same time improve the quality? Right. But if you think about it, that's the incentive that, going back to Adam Smith or any other economist, that's the incentive that drives the market. That's what makes the economic world go round. Businesses, whether they're selling cars or um, you know, deodorant or toothbrushes or houses or whatever, all sellers 
in a normal marketplace have an incentive to deliver value, a lower cost, but you get more for it. You get, you get a, a better, better quality, better speed, better reputation, a better warranty. You get the, the brand you like. So, so the purpose of the incentive that the consumer faces is not to, you know, as I say, saddle them with a, with a fiscal burden. It's to create an incentive on the plans to lower their cost. And that puts pressure on the low bidder. The low yeah. bidder has no guarantee that it will be, be low bidder next year. Next year. So they're always going to be looking over their shoulder and constantly thinking, well, how can I also keep yeah. being low bidder or close to the low bidder the next year and the next year? And, and then we also want the plans that maybe know that they can't be the low bidder. Maybe you don't even want to be, but they want to be more, let's say, like a, an iPhone or an right. Apple computer. They may be satisfied with being a little more costly, but they want to be able to demonstrate, I give you better quality, better service, better appearance, whatever it is. Well, that's, that's good too. That's what makes the market work, this interplay between um, lower cost, improved quality. We want pressure to move the market in that direction. And isn't that what we want as consumers? Don't we want the doctors, the hospitals, the healthcare plans striving to do better than each other, to lower right. what we pay and also improve the quality. So, so that's my plan that obviously a big question is how do you finance it? Right. Um, right. Because our current system is so screwy in its financing. And I, I can talk more about that if you want, but you know, I think most of us can see that it's, it's a, it's a very defective system of financing. Creating a fair, simple, rational system is going to cause big winners and, and some losers. Some people who are paying more than they should because they're giving other people a, a free ride. And then the free riders, the people who are getting their employees covered, for example, on some other employer's dime or on the taxpayer's dime, well, they're going to have to step up and, and start paying their fair share. So there's going to be some transition challenges that we face. But ultimately, we should also strive to not only have everybody covered, good benefits, choices, and the incentives pushing in the right direction. We need to strive to have a simple and fair and rational financing system where everybody pays a fair share for, for this necessity. And, and that's what I'll end up with. We've had this debate going on now for decades. Is health insurance a right? Is health insurance a privilege? And my answer to that, I, I personally believe it's a right. But I also believe that that debate is, is largely irrelevant. It's a necessity. We all need health insurance. We all get sick. We all have accidents. And we all have people who, who, who we know, our own children, our grandchildren, the children of friends, um, who through no fault of their own have illnesses, sometimes genetically caused, sometimes caused by things beyond their control. Sometimes caused by things that are within their control, but that we want people to do. Mm -hmm. we, want, we want people to play games. We want kids to you know, go out on the swing sets. And that means sometimes people are going to have accidents. So healthcare is a necessity to deal with you know, acute illnesses, chronic illnesses, and accidents. So let's kind of forget this right versus privilege debate recognize it's a necessity and, and construct a rational system. Oh, that makes sense. And um, 
I just kind of want to point out and get your reaction. But um, so people listening to this are maybe on one side of the aisle versus the other, and they they probably hear the opposite side, and 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 it stuck out to them. But I just kind of want to emphasize. Um, I'm sure people that are pure free market folks are thinking they're they're uncomfortable with the idea of the universal care. Um, but I, I kind of want to point out a distinction between what you're proposing and and the other versions of universal care, which is you're valuing the importance of market as actually being a way to control costs and, and in, increase quality. And I guess that's a concern that, that I would have is if you didn't have that in place, there's, there's no reason why things would get better and improve. There's no incentive, there's no market force for that. And so that I think is a really distinguishing feature of what you're proposing is is you value economics and incentives and markets at, at controlling costs and, and, and increasing quality. And you know, people will argue that that is why we have wonderful things like our iPhones that do so many things for less than a thousand dollars. Something like this is, is unimaginable. It was a market that, that led to that. And many people will say, yeah, but markets don't apply to healthcare. But I, I think you're, you're arguing that they have a role in healthcare, but sort of a balance, so. I think they have a, a huge role. I, I'm not an ideologue about this. I, I do think that there's some areas where, where frankly, we do want, um, if you will, monopolies. Um, I, I think it's a good idea, for example, that we don't have multiple fire departments. You know, they tried that out in cities back in the in two centuries ago, and the problem was that, you know, the fire engines that were hired by insurance company A would come to a house that was burning, but insured by fire company B and the, and the fire engine connected to fire company B was, was late, you know, you're not going to sit there and watch another house burn down. So Ben Franklin, you know, came up with the idea, let's have municipal, you know, government owned fire departments. In Milwaukee, we have a, a city owned uh, water works and we get good water. Um, we had a cryptosporidium problem, but now that's been solved and, you know, we get really high quality water. There's a case for private monopolies, you know, the, the public utilities that we have, the electric company, the gas company, uh, that, makes, that makes some sense. So I, I don't want to say that markets are the answer to every service that we need. Right. There, there is a role for, for government. Um, there's also a role in some cases for, for sort of a public-private mix. Um, I love having the University of Wisconsin, which is part of the government of Wisconsin, and I love having Concordia and Beloit and uh, Ripon and many other private universities, Lawrence. It's, it's probably a good thing to have this mix of public and private together. Yeah. And then some other areas where, except for protecting the environment and workers and consumers and investors from harm, we really want government to play a, very, a fairly limited role. Um, you know. I, when it comes to choosing toothbrushes at my local pharmacy, yes, government should ensure that it's really a toothbrush, uh, that it's not gonna fall apart, that when I use it, it's not gonna damage my teeth. But I like the fact that there are you know, probably 30 different toothbrushes. Uh, you know, any one company, Oral-B, has 10 alone. And, yeah. and that's good, and, and that's a place where with almost no government intervention, the market works perfectly well. So, so it, it's a continuum. Uh, when it comes to things like food, for example, or uh, other things where we're, we're ingesting them, uh, 
you know, you could argue, well, when it comes to toothpaste, you probably want a little more oversight because that can potentially do more harm to you if it's, if it's dangerous than a toothbrush. So it's a continuum ranging from government monopoly to private monopoly to a mixed government and private to almost entirely private with some government oversight to the, to the least possible government oversight. I think healthcare falls in the middle of this continuum where government's role is important, you know, getting everybody covered. And I don't favor a mandate, if you will, that everybody must have health insurance. I simply favor having a program that says everybody has health insurance. And if you don't choose a plan, one will be assigned to you as, as being available to you. Right. But if someone just doesn't believe in that and doesn't want to use it, that's, that's fine. They can just, you know, just ignore it. Um, yeah. I'm not sure we can give them a refund, but because uh, then people would demand a refund for the years when they're healthy and when they're sick, they'll insist on being in and that's called adverse selection and that's a bad idea. But, but we're, this is not technically requiring anybody to do anything. The, the only requirement would be the ground rules of the competition and then the requirement that somebody somehow has to pay enough money to finance the system. Right. Well, Singapore has a, a HSA that I believe is government sponsored. And then, uh, and then they let you spend that money to make choices like you're proposing in sort of a, a private market where there's competition. And, and, and then at, when a person retires, that money can actually be their retirement or part of their estate if they don't spend it all. So it's, trying to create a market force it's got some similarities to yours if if each year in singapore that they had a, a baseline health plan like you're talking about then in some ways it's similar i guess i just want to when people hear about universal health care they, they group all the rest of the world together whether it's canada uk germany switzerland um you may know more than than i but i know switzerland germany and others they have private markets where you can shop but it's government sponsored so it's got some similarities to what you're proposing. My understanding of the Canadian system is it's one uniform government program and you're not really easily allowed to go out of that. And I've heard stories from doctors and, and seen literature where, for example, if you have to wait a couple, and I don't wanna get into the controversy about wait times, but, but if say you had to wait a month or two for an MRI, but you wanted to pay out of pocket for one, you can't do that in Canada. So they come to the US, whereas, my sense is your program would differ from that and that you actually have choices. So, so if there was a plan that promised you that you could get your MRI in two weeks and you paid a little more for that, you could choose that. So, so you're not sort of forced into one universal. Is that sort of an accurate distinction between what you're proposing and some of these other versions of universal healthcare? Yeah, I, th there's, there's a lot of different versions and um, you know, some of them, you know, like the English system, at least the, the primary English system is, uh, perhaps at one extreme where, you know, government uh, hires, operates the clinics. Uh, by the it's government out. run. So it's government run. Then other, other programs that are often, you know, put under the same umbrella, socialized medicine have a lot more private sector involvement and competition. Um, to me, this, this, uh, it, it, we, we need a system where government oversees the program make sure that people, everybody has access, make sure that the benefits are good, and then sets up the marketplace to be effective. But I do think that, that the best way to get lower costs and higher quality is to let 
the private market function to squeeze out the enormous amount of error and waste and inefficiency that, that's in the system. The Institute of Medicine, as you know, uh, several years ago came out with a report, I think they've updated it, in which they've said that something like 30% of what is spent on healthcare in the United States is the result of, of error, of waste and inefficiency. It, it seems to me that the, that the best way to sort of free up money for people, both during their working years and their retired years, is to stop this crazy growth in healthcare. So it's now up to like 18, 19% of GDP. Yes. Uh, it's probably going to topple over 10% or 20% rather. We're going to get up to 25% as the baby boom ages. But we're not getting any healthier. If anything, we're getting less healthy in aggregate. And, you know, there's complex reasons for that. But um, I'm not sure we can ever reverse it and bring it back from 20% down to 19, 18, and 17. I, there's a part of me that thinks that's still possible. But even if we held it flat or slowed the growth, uh, that's going to free up hundreds of, of billions of dollars over time. Yeah. It can go into um, it can go into earnings. It can go into income. It can go into corporate profits. It can go into tax revenue. Um, one of the things that happens when corporations uh, yeah, pay less for their employees' health care. Let, let's assume we finance this with a with a, uh, a payroll tax or some sort of tax that corporations pay. Well, if we can reduce uh, the amount that they pay and that workers pay, because it's usually healthcare costs are really paid by the workers as compensation, you, you as an economist know that, then, then, then workers get higher salaries. Yeah. One of the things that happens with higher salaries is that government gets more Medicare tax revenue and more social, uh, uh, social security tax revenue and higher income tax revenue. We can then use that revenue to maybe give bigger tax breaks or spend it on things that we that we value like education or maybe give some more money to the CDC so the next time we're threatened with a COVID-19 situation we've got you know faster better uh, response right. so but the point is you you can't make better uses of either public funds or private funds unless you have those additional funds in the first place right. and single best way for the United States to generate extra salaries, wages, profits, and government revenue is to slow the growth of healthcare costs. And going back to government versus markets, I think it's government's job to set up the marketplace function to produce that downward pressure on price growth. Yeah. I would say that that is not a functioning market right now. So no. it's sort of the opposite of a free market. So. So, well, this has been great, David. So are you up for talking about this on July 31st with Representative Kirk Elo to give your perspective? Keeping in mind, there may be some people that are very free market minded and, and might take some issue with what you have. I'm, I, I'm happy to join any any panel or, or any other gathering that involves Kirk uh, Elo or yourself. And uh, yeah. all, all the really tough questions, I'll, I'll let him answer. Yeah, well, I just appreciate that you appreciate the value of markets. Because, you know, you said you're not sure if it can go down. And I don't know if it's fair to compare the U.S. to Singapore, but they spend, I think, 3% of GDP on healthcare, and they have outcomes that are as good as ours. And they have universal healthcare and markets. So, right. 
like you, I hope we can at least constrain it because I don't think we can afford to go much more than 20% of GDP because there are other things we have to buy. So. Right, that's right. And, and, and we just need to also enable people to save uh, more money. Yeah. Um, this is maybe a bit of an aside, but one of the problems we've seen beginning in the mid 70s is, is a decline in uh, defined benefit pension plans. And yeah. some people think that's good, some people think it's bad, but one consequence that's pretty clear is that seniors going forward are gonna have less dependable retirement income. You know, the, yeah. the so-called three-legged stool of social security and employer-sponsored annuity and then savings well, the, the employer-sponsored annuity has sort of disappeared off of that three-legged stool. Social Security faces challenges. Some people say it's a crisis. I don't think it's that bad, but it's got challenges. So we need to, if you will, you know, increase the strength of, of uh, savings. But you can't save money if so much of the money in our, our system is being sopped up in healthcare. Yeah. So that, that's a particular reason why seniors or people looking to be seniors, you know, maybe you uh, and, and others coming along in I don't know how many decades or years, while controlling healthcare costs is particularly important. You can't save money if it isn't there to be saved in the first place. Right, and even if you did save it, if you have assisted living or nursing home, I think I've heard 60% of people in nursing homes are, are on Medicaid, which means that they've hit poverty level, so not a good way to end your life. So. Right. So thank you uh, for this yes. opportunity to talk with you and look forward to the uh, getting together again uh, towards the end of July. Great. Thanks, David. We will look forward to seeing you and what you have to say on July 31st. This podcast is brought to you by Concordia University, Wisconsin and Concordia University, Ann Arbor. However, the opinions and views are not meant to be official statements on their behalf.